Hey, what's going on, everybody? Is your host, Jordan Beachnaw of Crossing the Jordan, and today is the first official podcast episode, and we are going to be talking about the existence of God. So let's get philosophical. All right, so let's get right into it because I have a lot of notes, but I'm going to make this an efficient and effective podcast for everybody. So just to give you an overview of what to expect in this podcast episode on the existence of God, first I want to break down some barriers or presuppositions that we typically bring to the table when talking about the existence of God. Then we're going to dive into reason and logic, and uh, it's a very philosophical question. We're going to talk about morals and the problems of evil. We're going to talk about false views of God. We're going to talk about science evolution. And we're going to talk about how all of that is compatible with creation in the Bible in the book of Genesis and how it's compatible with the God revealed in the Bible. So the first thing I want to do is break down some barriers. So uh, as Christians, we shouldn't ever, if we're talking about something about the existence of God, there's definitely better ways to present it and approach it than talk than pointing to the Bible. Because typically, if a person doesn't believe in God, they're not going to believe in the Bible. And also, it's kind of like a circular reference. So there's much more uh, to talking about it than just pointing to the Bible. Um, then we're, uh, a lot of people, uh, especially in our day and age, talk about they believe in science. They're a person that just believes in science. Well, so does the Catholic Church. And we'll talk about later when we talk about science. But out of religion and out of specifically Christianity and the Catholic Church, science has been created and has been completely flourishing in the Christian West. And then, uh, or if you think that you have to believe that God created the world in six days, as a lot of people, a lot of Christians say is presented in the Bible, that it was six literal 24-hour days, and some people, or believe that the world is 6,000 to 10,000 years old, a lot of people cannot get their uh head wrapped around that so that all of a sudden they just block out that there's no god well let's talk about the creator and and we'll see later that um the church embraces science and uh we'll talk about that creation story in genesis and it is not a teaching of the church that uh it was this world was created six thousand years ago and it was literally made in six 24-hour days even though you are allowed to uh believe in that so so let's talk first about like faith and reason. The church actually even teaches as dogma that God can be known with certainty of human reason. Reason alone is enough to show us that God exists and without any faith at all. Even in uh, as St. Paul says in Romans one twenty, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So anybody, whether you even know the Bible, if you know Jesus, uh, if you literally just seeing creation around you, it demands that there's a creator. So you can know that there is a creator and God that has created all the things around us. And then uh, St. John Paul II, he even says, faith and reason are two things, two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. So a conflict between faith and reason arises only when people use incorrect definitions of these terms. It is, the, it is true that reason involves the use of the mind to make sense of the world and justify the beliefs we think are true, but faith is not believing without evidence or belief in the absence of evidence. Um, in the Catechism in paragraph 1814, it says that faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe that believe all that he has said and revealed to us. And also, as the Catechism puts it in 159, Methodical research is all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of the faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself, for it is God, the conserver of all things, who made them what they are. So the Catholic Church has no fear of science or scientific discovery because, as we will see at some point, that the Catholic Church has been huge in scientific discovery. And uh, and just to kind of summarize all of that, faith and reason, neither of them contradict each other. And so let's dive in. So let's go first through some just some reasoning of the existence of God. So this is the first one that I'll present. Whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause of of its existence, what we call God. 
So nothing can begin to exist without a cause. And since the universe began to exist, even scientists say that there's an age limit to it, that uh, mostly most scientists say that it's about 13.7 billion years ago. So time and space and the universe around us that we observe had a beginning. Even scientists say that. So if it had a uh, a beginning, then therefore there was something that caused it. Well, you cannot have an infinite amount of cause causes. At some point, there has to be an uncaused cause. What I mean by that is that at some point, something had to make the original cause out of nothing. So God created out of absolutely nothing, out of his infinite being, he created this entire universe. So the cause of the universe cannot be some impersonal force because prior to the creation of the universe, there's only a timeless, spaceless, unchangeable state of affairs. An an eternal and personal force would blindly generate an effect for all eternity. But since the universe is not eternal, it follows that a personal being chose to create a finite universe and the universe was not the product of an eternal and personal force. So if God created the universe and the universe is finite, meaning it has an end and a beginning, then God cannot have arranged eternally pre-existing matter in order to make the universe. He must instead have brought the universe into being from nothing through an act of his will. Only things that began to exist need a cause. If something doesn't have to exist, then we need an explanation for why it does exist. But if something does have to exist, If it's a necessary being like God, then it doesn't need an explanation. Existence is simply part of what it is. And God, by definition, is a necessary being that must exist. And I'll kind of piece that apart later on too when uh, the God of the Bible says, I am, he is existence of of himself. So, and God requires no cause for his existence, but the universe coming to being from nothing does require an uncaused cause or God to explain why it exists. Since the cause of the universe is responsible for the existence of space and time, it must also be immune to the restrictions of space and time, that is, be immaterial and eternal, God. This means the first cause cannot be a material object. Also, the forces we are aware of, like gravity, exist within the space-time universe, so they could not be responsible for the creation of space and time. So that's actually, that entire thing right there is called the Kalam argument. So essentially what it boils down to is that Everything that is created demands a creator. And at some point, something had to be created out of nothing, God. And then you have this contingency argument. So the first step is whatever exists that does not have to exist, it requires an explanation for its existence. Second step is the physical universe does not have to exist. The third step is therefore the universe requires an explanation in something that must exist. The fourth step, God is the only being that must exist. Number five, and lastly, the conclusion, therefore, God is the explanation for the existence of the universe. So to sum that up, there must be an ultimate explanation, one that doesn't depend on anything else, and thus none that explains everything else. So the classical response of religious philosophy is that no contingency can be explained satisfactorily by appealing endlessly to other contingencies. Therefore, some finally non-contingent reality, which grounds and actualizes the finite universe, must exist. And so this uncaused cause, this reality is whose very nature is just to be. He is existence. That is what we call as religious people, God. So in other words, contingent things need other things in order to stay in existence. So for example, humans need the oxygen plants create. The oxygen we breathe needs an atmosphere. The atmosphere requires the planet's gravity in order to stay together, and so on it goes. Humans then are contingent because we can imagine a, we can imagine a world without them. We can do the same with objects such as stars and planets. The universe as a whole is contingent, and so there must be some reason that explains why it exists. A contingent universe like ours depends on a necessary being like God in order to exist. The reason the universe exists must be found in something outside of the universe. God is outside of time and outside of creation because he is the creator. And as we will talk later, he is still very intimately uh, aware and very part of his creation. He did not just create it and leave. So, and then lastly, here's the, I guess the moral argument, argument, and we're going to dive into some of the, the, thought process behind um, why evil exists. 
So actually, this has always been a problem with believing in God. And uh, even uh, the great, great theologian of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas of the, of the 13th century and the 1200s, I actually have his book. It's called the Summa Theologiae. I thought I was going to be like so sweet about getting the, his book, um, which is typically comes in a huge series of it. I, I, I got the one copy that all of it is all in one place. So I get this book. It's literally, I mean, it's huge. The biggest book I have on the bookshelf by far. It's super tall. It's really wide. And the font, I, when I opened it, I thought I was looking at the footnotes. They were The font was probably a font size of like seven or six. And it was from cover, from corner to corner on every single page. And guess what? That is a work that he didn't even complete because he had an encounter with God that he almost wanted to destroy all of his work in the Summa Theologiae and all of his other uh, writings because what he experienced, and I believe is almost a, a, a I, th- I believe is an encounter with God during Mass in the Eucharist, Jesus in the Eucharist, and he saw the heaven realities. I'm not positive on that, but he had this crazy encounter with God, and he felt like everything that he wrote was just straw, and he could have just done away with it because it just cannot compare to his experience of God. So, anyways, in that Summa Theologiae. His, he actually, he, so he takes on arguments from other people, but what Thomas Aquinas actually does is takes other people's arguments or objections against God and he actually makes them even stronger. So he strengthens their <laughs> arguments and then just pulls them apart. So for example, one, uh, just like the problem with evil, people j- typically generically say that, but here's what Thomas Aquinas actually, this is his objection, making someone else's objection against God. Um, even stronger. So, so he, this is what he says. If one of two opposites is infinite, the other would be altogether destroyed. God means infinite goodness. Therefore, if God existed, there would be no evil discoverable, but there is evil. Therefore, God does not exist. And then he just picks out a whole piece apart. So let's dive into the morals and why evil exists. So Just to start out, let's even go through, um, there are objective moral values that do exist, and let's dive into into that. So there's four possibilities of of objective morality existing. So let's first talk about these four reasons. I'm going to talk about nature, individual choice, society, and then God. So let's first talk about nature. So nature, the moral laws could be part of the natural world, like the laws of physics. So in that case, they would be something that the natural sciences could detect, but you cannot measure good and evil in a scientific experiment. They're not tangible things. So therefore, morality must transcend the natural world and the realm of sciences. Let's go into the individual choice. So a lot of people say making our own reality, our own morality according to our own choices it just it, that just falls short because it doesn't explain how things could be right or wrong, even apart from or in contradiction to my choice, and it wouldn't result in a set of moral values that are binding to other people. So, such as like uh, every single person would agree, killing somebody is wrong, no matter what you believe during that time. <laughs> let's dive into, and we'll dive back into each of these a little bit more, but let's go to that third step, society. So it's just like, it's just the collective version of the individual choices idea that I discussed uh, above. But um, so what if a society approves something? So let's say a, pro- the, a society of its own, like an entire country believes that slavery or the Holocaust is moral. That's okay. Well, clearly the rest of the world would say that it's immoral. There is an objective truth. And actually, just to take a step back to when I say objective truth, a lot of people say there is no objective truth or there is no absolute truth. But that argument is self-refuting because as you say, there is no absolute truth. You are therefore saying that the absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. (laughs) So it's self-refuting, but there is an absolute truth. So, and then uh, and then just this fourth step is God. So uh, there are um, some scientists who say uh, about God is that a command only makes sense when there are two minds involved, one giving the command and one receiving it. So if an objective moral law is indeed a command that we receive, there 
then there must be an objective, personal moral commander beyond nature, the individual, and society, the three things that we mentioned above. So God is a perfectly good transcendent lawgiver. He is the only thing that we can logically point to as a basis for saying that some things are just right or wrong. So then God must exist in order for the concept of a good person to be coherent or for morals in general to be objective. Example, why the statement, it is always wrong to torture children is always true. So another proposed way to ground morality apart from God, so try, people trying to, to separate, hey, I can be a moral person away from God, is to say that the consensus of a community decides what is moral or immoral. So this is like the societal argument that we discussed. If this were so, then we couldn't say that any other society is moral is more or less moral than our own, only that they are different. So if morality comes from society, then society, even when it makes racist laws, can never be immoral. But we would never say that. Slavery and any injustice done to human beings are always uh, wrong. So even like people say now like how that has changed like even in our own country the views of slavery have changed but that doesn't change the objective it actually shows exactly what the argument we're saying is is because morality doesn't say that it is something it says that it should be this way and right now we're saying that we are moving away from something that it shouldn't be and moving closer to an objective truth of being morality that hey slavery is never okay so and then moral truths aren't descriptive truths like the like the law of gravity. So so gravity basically says exactly what will happen. So prescriptive truths or truths prescriptive truths or truths that the, say what should happen or what moral beings should do in a given circumstance. The law of gravity says that all things being equal, an object pushed over a cliff will fa- cliff will fall and hit the ground below. But the law of morality says that one should not push grandma over the cliff in order to kill her. I would agree with that. I love you, grandma. Since laws of nature cannot be disobeyed, if you jump off a cliff, gravity will take over no matter what you think of it. And moral laws can be disobeyed. It follows that morality is not a mere law of nature. So... And then there's this argument that one can be a good person without believing in God, and that is true. So one person, one can be a good person without believing in God, but without God, goodness itself loses its meaning. Said differently, if God did not exist, well, then that infinite transcendent moral law that he instituted from his eternal goodness, we wouldn't even know what's good and what's bad because there is an objective good, and everybody sees that evil is actually a lack of good. And we're going to dive a little bit more into that now. So only really within a moral framework that the sufferings of this life can even have any meaning. So, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, when I talk about Jesus and just um, suffering in general um, and what uh, suffering really means in this life. So, um, so let's talk about the like moral evil. So moral evil is defined as privations of the good and represent a defect in the one who is causing the moral evil. So evil can best be described as an unwarranted suffering so or, or a state of affairs that is not supposed to be. So, But this also implies that, just like we were referring to er- earlier, is that we're even referencing that there is some things that are supposed to be. So it's a notion that does not make sense in an accidental atheistic universe, but does make sense in a universe created by God. Um, and then I, I, just really quick too, some people argue that religion is the number one source of like violence or wars. And I actually used to say that all the time when I was in junior high and high school. And that's just not true. There are there was a ton of violence and there has been like caused uh, differences. And But religion, one, that, that gets a bad rap, but religion for one, it's used in the Bible. So for a lot of my brothers and sisters to say they follow Jesus, but they're not religious. I used to, I share that video once before too on YouTube. Um, I, I was like, yeah, I love Jesus. I love the Bible, but I'm not religious. Religion, one, St. Paul talks about what a, what a good religion is. And throughout the, the, the letters and the epistles, it's talked to about what a true good religion is. And it's talking about taking care of the widows, look, feeding, looking after the sick and the homeless and all of these things. So, But religion literally means like binding people together on a common belief. So and especially the God of Christianity, it's literally all love and and um, and uh, just unity. 
that's what Jesus calls us for. Now, there have been divisions because one, we're still sinful, fallen people and we're broken and we cause divisions. And we also want to protect what we uh, know is to be true. So uh, that is not a rationalization of it by any means, but those are the realities of it. But let's just address this. So number one source of violence, er, wrong. So wars of religion like account for less than 5% of all the wars religions. And that does that still, even if religion like if you were to look at organized religions and and even if that was true let's say that was true religion is the number one source of all violence and murders and all these things and horrible things that have gone on let's even say that was true that still doesn't say that there's not a god because we could say the same thing for atheism so joseph stalin he ruled over an atheistic regime that killed tens of millions of people well as people that believe in god that wouldn't be fair to be like yep see there, there is a God because or atheism isn't true because Joseph Stalin, who is atheist, killed 10 million people. So what was an enormous crime against humanity then, but we can't conclude from it that atheism is false and so there must be a God. So likewise, we can't take crimes committed in God's name as proof that he doesn't exist. So, and then there's even uh, sayings that, you know, like religious people are so caught up in the next life or or heaven that they don't even care for people on earth. Well, out of the Catholic Church, it was them, it was the Catholics who founded and flourished schools, hospitals, charities, um, orphanages, and, and, and all of that, the like. Western civilization has been basically built from uh, Catholicism because it was the mission of, um, restoring humanity that jesus came to save god literally became flesh he provided us and gave us human dignity and we saw that so we were helping our brothers and sisters all around us so you won't see that any anywhere like in the catholic church so um and we'll talk more about this but a lot of people say uh like the problem with evil as well and i'll talk about this in my episode with jesus but a lot of i i've gotten this question from friends before and i didn't know how to answer it but um a lot of people say well if jesus came and defeated sin and death well why is there so much still why is there still so much sin and evil and death well we have to understand why jesus came and he did defeat those things but what what did jesus do so jesus came and defeated sin and death that sin and death actually happen. So he entered into our human limitations and into our sin and even on to the most excruciating and humiliating death for us, given that those are still realities of this world. Because God is a God of love. So if, and this is another argument of like the arguments against hell. If God is love, why is there hell? Well, one, God did not create hell. Hell is the absence of God. It's eternal separation from God. But why would that exist if we say that there is a God that is love himself? So, well, let's talk about that. What is love? Love is willing the good of another or giving yourself. It's an action. Love isn't, sometimes it is a feeling. Like if we fall, start falling in love with, with somebody, originally that is a feeling. But over time, if love was just a feeling, then we would just be out. We would literally never be able to commit ourselves to any given thing or given person. But love is an action and that is expressed. The greatest image of love, I'm looking at it right now, is Jesus on the crucifix for us. That is the greatest image of love that you'll ever see. That is a not a passive act. That is a, an intentional act to come and save somebody else. He'll do anything and came for you. But anyway, so love is willing the good of another. So if it literally you cannot have love if you're by yourself or if you're in complete possession. So if God just possessed us, right? So he just created us for his own being and he just possessed us. Well, then there is no love because there is no giving. Love is self-sacrifice, self-giving completely to one another. And God, out of his infinite love, has created you out of his infinite love for you. So, um, so he can't force us to love because then he wouldn't be perfectly loving and thus he would not be God. It'd be contradicting himself. So he gave us a complete free will. He gave us reasons and intellect and our own rational being. So in creation, in Genesis, it says that we are made in God's image and likeness. Well, God, he does not have a body. Jesus did when he came in the flesh, but like God did 
from creation and from all eternity, he did not have a body, right? Um, we're not, he's not saying in the, in the book of Genesis and creation that God had a body and we're, we look just like him. So what uh, being made in God's image and likenesses mean is that we are made to be rational creatures. We have rational abilities. We can resemble God in that immaterial way, such as having the possibility of choosing to love and to be just. And God does not choose to be love or to be just. He is perfect love and, ju- and, and goodness and, just, and justice. So just to back up a little bit. So when we said earlier, if there is creation, these things that are moving and there's uh, these changes that happen, well, what the creator then must have been an unmovable, unchangeable being. And actually scripture backs that up too. God says that he does not change in the book of Malachi. Um, and in uh, the New Testament as well, he says that he is not a God of differences or he does not change. So um, when we say like God is angry or his wrath or anything like that, it's not that how God relates to us, but it's how we relate to God because he is perfect justice and we have a choice to ignore him, to deny him or to choose him. And he's going to respect that because that's what love is, is respecting your choice. So I have a choice to love him and that's what I want to do. But we also have a choice and he's given us free will to deny him. And so, um, and out of his perfect justice, therefore, uh, you know, we can have, he's going to respect that decision. He's going to respect our choice, but his mercy is also perfect as well. And that's something we cannot fathom. We cannot read the human heart like God does. Anyways, that's, I'm getting into something else that is safe for another topic, but really, so God of God is love, but why is there a hell? So if we threw out the doctrine of hell, we would also have to throw out one of two other beliefs. Humans have free will or God is love because he cannot contradict himself and um, he's got, he has perfect justice and he will allow us to choose for ourselves So because he wants us to love him back. So, um, and really the whole, their, God created man and woman in his image and likeness, pure beings to have fellowship with him in the book of Genesis. And what did we do? We tried to be like God without God. That's what our first parents tried to do. They tried to have infinite wisdom and knowledge without having God. And that's what we continue to do today in this world. All right, so let's also, let's jump into other views of God, of who God is or what God is. So there's uh, really, there's three things that are outside of the Judean Christian religion um, that believe in one God, one creator. So there's a belief of polytheism, so belief in many gods. So this is very... Um, ancient. So a lot of ancient followers of of Greek or Roman mythology were examples of polytheists, but not all Greeks and Romans believed in many gods. So actually we talk about in school Plato and Aristotle. So Plato was 427 BC. Aristotle learned from Plato and that was in 384 to 322 BC. And they both believed in a supreme being or God who created all of reality. Aristotle said in his metaphysics that gods like Zeus were myths, but the true God is a living being, eternal, most good, so that life and duration, continuous and eternal, belong to God. For this is God. So the orderly behavior of the universe according to fixed natural laws is evidence for monotheism. And then there's this second view of uh, God, pantheism, which is every element of the universe is divine and the divine is equally present in everything. God may be a personal being who comprises the universe or he may be an impersonal force that fills up the universe. But whatever God is, God is not a creator who exists apart from the universe. So, but that fails and we'll logically explain that now. So the universe could have failed to exist and actually did begin to exist from nothing in the finite past. Therefore, the universe's existence must be explained by a being who is eternal and exists independently of the universe since it brought the universe into being, what we know to be the traditional God of monotheism. Monotheism, by the way, when I said that before, that is what we believe in one God. That's what Jews, Muslims, and Christians believe, one God. 
And then there's this uh, thought of deism. So the the thought that God no longer interacts with the world, he created it all. He just created it and left it. And actually some of our founding fathers in this country were deists. So um, like the founding father, Thomas Jefferson, he was a deist. And we'll talk about um, a little more of that when we talk about Jesus, because we believe as Christians that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God, three persons revealed as the Trinity, three persons and one God who is so intimately caring about his creation that he would come and die to redeem it. So let's talk about science now. All right, so let's first talk about um, science. The the thought process that people say, well, I believe in science and I'm not religious or I don't believe in God, that's actually a pretty recent phenomenon. So science has always flourished out of Christianity. Most science had steeps of theology about God and Catholicism and Christianity. They Almost all scientists in the past were super devout religious. However, that has changed and now people has basically taken science as a new religion. So, um, however, like I mentioned, science came out of religious belief because we believe that God created the world around us and therefore has this right order, which we have found in the scientific method and just how the laws of nature, like there's a cause and effect and that effect isn't a huge surprise to us because we've just seen the observations. Um, We've seen the seasons around us. Everything is just in this natural flow. It's in this liturgy, almost like the mass, right? And our liturgical calendar, we go with nature and that's what the Jews did. Anyways, that's another topic. But uh, And um, so the reason science has like kind of came out of religion is because uh we wanted to is we wanted to look and discover more of god's creation because then that discovers more truths about who god is right and um and i love this quote by c.s lewis he says and this is talking about how we basically treat god um when we're talking about science says we treat god as the policeman in the story treated how the policeman in the story treated the suspect whatever he does Whatever he does will be used in evidence against him. So it's like God is in a, in a in a tough situation with all of us trying to just disprove him any way that we can. So uh, and actually, so let's first kind of debunk the thought that the Catholic Church is against um, science. So an actual historian, J. L. Halbron. Halbron said that the Roman Catholic Church gave more financial and social support to the study of astronomy for over six centuries, and they're specifically talking about the the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, for over six centuries, from the recovery of ancient learning during the late Middle Ages into the Enlightenment than any other and probably all other institutions. And actually in the 1200s, the Catholic Church gave rise to the institution that became the primary source for knowledge in our modern world, which was the university. Guess what? That came out of the Catholic Church. Beginning in Paris and Bologna, the universities supported scholars like St. Thomas Aquinas, who developed a synthesis of classical Greco-Roman knowledge and Christian theology. Within a few centuries, more than 50 universities sprang up throughout Europe, providing hundreds of thousands of students with an unprecedented access to knowledge about science and history. So if we're trying to hide science, boy, we just did a horrible job at that by supporting (laughs) the very thing that was producing all of this brilliant work of science. We embrace science. So let's talk about what uh, some Catholics have done for science. So Albert the Great, he's a medieval saint. He is actually the patron saint of natural science because of his diligence in cataloging all of the known scientific discoveries of his time. And then in the 13th century, Franciscan friar Roger Bacon emphasized the importance of experiments in science and helped gather research about light and and optics, which was later advanced in the same century by the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Peckham. And then in 1543, Nicholas Copernicus, who held a degree in Catholic canon law, became the first person to advance a comprehensive description of the heliocentric universe. So putting the sun in the middle and the earth revolving around it. The 17th century bishop Nicholas Steno was one of the founders of modern geology and provided many valuable insights into stratigraphy which is the study of rock layers. And then uh, in 1740, the Scottish Benedictine monk, Andrew Gordon, became the first person to build an electronic motor. And the 19th century Augustinian friar, this is going to be, 
Well, so anyways, the 19th century Augustinian friar Gregor Mendel's, his experiment with pea plants resulted in what are now known as the Mendelian laws of inheritance, and Mendel himself is considered one of the founders of the science of genetics. And then, this is one of my favorite ones because I feel like nobody knows this. Everybody that talks about science, they're like, big bang, big bang, this happened. Do you even know where the big bang came from? Guess what? And uh, in the 20th century, in 1933, well, it was actually in 1931, but the Belgian, it was actually from a Belgian priest. Belgian priest, his name is Georges Lemaitres, and uh, he developed the Big Bang Theory. He's actually even titled Father of the Big Bang Theory, and you can just Google it. Type in, who created the Big Bang Theory? It's going to say, Belgian priest, Georges Lemaitres. So, and actually, he was friends. I don't know if he was friends, but it seemed like he interacted with him a lot. Was Albert Einstein? Um, so one day in 1931, um, he concluded that Einstein's new theory of gravity, called the general relativity, would cause a static, eternal universe to collapse into nothingness. So, since Einstein's theory was sound, this means only one thing: the universe was not static, but growing and had a beginning in the finite past. So, this this idea of a, a universe that continues to expand. So, therefore, this Big Bang, right? So, who caused that Big Bang? God did. Um, so, Father Lemaitre and Einstein even discussed the cosmic consequences of the theory while walking around the campus uh, campus one day. So, um, and then. So Einstein was actually pretty skeptical at first about this, but then in, two years later, in 1933, he even said and that that Father Lemaitre's theory of an expanding universe was one of the most beautiful theories he had ever heard, and this theory was really evidence for the expansion of space as well as time, matter, and energy from an infinitely dense point called the singularity. So according to renowned Tufts University cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin. Uh, he says that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Who created that? God did. So the data we observe is that the universe, which includes all of space, time, matter, and energy, began to exist and that it came into existence from an uncaused cause that transcends space and time, or what we call God. So, and then let's talk about just what the catechism talks about science. So this is from paragraph 283. So um, I guess start out the contribution made by the physical sciences to examining these questions is stressed by the catechism which states the question about the origins of the world and of man has been the object of many scientific studies which have splendidly enriched our knowledge of the age and dimensions of the cosmos the development of life forms and the appearance of man these discoveries invite us to even greater admiration for the greatness of the creator prompting us to give him thanks for all his works and for the understanding and wisdom he gives to scholars and researchers. So the Catholic Church embracing science. And actually the catechism still teaches that all of us as Catholics should weigh the evidence for the universe's age by examining biblical and scientific evidence. So in catechism, in the catechism, paragraph 159 it says, though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind. God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. So before we dive into the uh, science, but let's talk about just the downfalls, the shortfalls of science. So first off, a lot of people, like I was ex- explaining er- earlier, that they say that there are no absolutes, but that's a self-refuting argument, and so is uh, saying that you're a rationalist because in order to be a rationalist, you have to start with faith to believe in your rationalism, right? So faith and reason. You cannot have complete, um, you know, reason can only take you so far, right? But you have to believe in that reasoning, which is faith. So, and then uh, another shortfall is science restricts itself to searching for natural explanations of observed phenomena. Science can show us only the universe's dimensions. It cannot reveal any meaning or lack of meaning inherent in those dimensions. Since the question of God is philosophical in nature, scientists who investigate it are no more qualified than any other educated layman. Um, and actually, science relies on philosophy in order to know what science actually even is, how science works, and what counts as science. It is philosophy that helps distinguish the legitimate sciences of astronomy and chemistry from the pseudosciences of astrology and alchemy. 
Sciences also rely on the philosophical assumption that the world operates under scientific laws that are the same across the universe and are the same yesterday and tomorrow. There is no experiment that can validate these philosophical assumptions. Also, since modern science is restricted to the search of natural explanations that can be tested, it must be neutral on the question of whether God exists. All right, and then um, even uh, there's an evolutionary biologist and atheist, Stephen Jay Gold. He even says, this is his quote, to say it for all my colleagues and for the umpteenth million time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. So there you go. Scientists have it has its limitations. And also, uh, science cannot prove these three things. It cannot prove the laws of logic. So mathematical truths, it merely presupposes them. Science presupposes these laws of logic. And then science also cannot prove the metaphysical truths, such as the reality of the external world or that the universe did not simply spring into existence five minutes ago with the appearance of age including our memories of a past that never happened. These are rational beliefs, but they can't be proven scientifically. And then lastly, it cannot prove morality, as we described before. Science can't show that we have a duty to help a starving child or that Nazi concentration camps are evil. Good and evil are not material entities that can be measured in a laboratory. Therefore, their existence and nature are beyond what science can prove. And if science, scientism was actually true, then it should be scientifically provable. But the claim that like you shouldn't believe any anything unless it is proven by science is a philosophical claim that you can't verify by any scientific experiment. Rather, it expresses a value judgment, what we should choose to believe, placing it in the realm of ethics or morals. So scientism, therefore, is self-refuting because it cannot meet its own test. Um, and faith as a kind of trust based on good reasons. For hundreds of years, scientists committed to naturalism, believed that the universe was eternal, while the Bible and the church taught that the universe had a beginning in time. Instead, as we've seen before, a lot of uh, almost all scientists say that the universe had a beginning. So here we see that the faith was accommodating science. So it turns out that science may have to accommodate the faith as new evidence from Big Bang cosmology points toward an ultimate beginning of the universe. And then there's also arguments out there for a parallel universe, but an argument of a parallel universe caused our universe would be no explanation for why our universe exists. It would be like saying a boxcar on a train moves because it's pulled by the boxcar in front of it and so on. So even if it was one or a million boxcars, depending on something else in order to move, they cannot move themselves. Therefore, they must be moved by something that moves itself, such as a locomotive. So uh, a parallel universe does not explain why our universe exists. And and even a, a larger, even infinite series of universes or physical forces didn't have to exist and thus cannot explain their own existence. Things would still need to be explained by a cause that cannot fail to exist, a necessary cause that sustains not only the whole collection of contingent universes, but the matter and forces that exist within those universes as well. Because it is necessary, this cause is also... This cause also couldn't be created or destroyed. In other words, it would be what you would, you and I would call God. And there are many times in this life where we have to have faith. Like just reason alone of the past does not get us to anywhere that we want to be in the future. So I read this and I love this example is that um, just uh, like if we waited to have conclusive proof that a prospective spouse will always be faithful and never betray us, then we would never get married. And actually the f the, the opposite would happen, right? So and trying to get that kind of proof would likely crush the relationship before we could even get engaged, right? And lastly, just kind of uh, highlighting just this shortfall of science. Um, actually, a NASA scientist, his name is uh, Robert Jastrow. He, this is his quote. Is, it says that, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> so this just goes to show you that 
the that faith and reason you need both of them so we embrace science but it also has so many limitations to it and uh it presupposes all of these natural realities that point to a god an unchanging god and you have to have faith and you have to have um this uh presupposition that these truths are objective in order to operate out of that scientific um ideology so, and the church has never condemned science um, in a way that is just like, nope, no science anymore. And actually, the Catholic Church is still one of the highest um, institutions that fund uh, astronomy. So, and if the church ever condemned or condemns any scientific inquiry or research or even practices, it is purely to protect the safety and dignity of the human person because that is first and foremost, science should never, ever overwrite the laws of morality. And especially, um, we believe in a God that believes that, that he came in the flesh to give complete dignity and freedom to the human being and our bodies are also going to be resurrected with us in Jesus' second coming. But um, so such as like the anything that the church has condemned is to protect the safety and dignity of the human person. So just a few examples of those are is in vitro fertilization. So it's be, why? It is because it's basically producing babies as a manufacturing system. It takes the 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 uh, unitive aspect out of a marriage. And it also condemns not just stem cell research, but embryonic stem cell research. Why? Is because Catholics, well, one, we understand it's super important to heal the sick, right? So Jesus told us that go heal the sick. And he even said that we're going to do greater things than he did. Well, out of the Catholic Church became hospitals and orphanages and all of these things to provide uh, a better life for the human person, right? But um, so embryonic stem cell research, it's not moral because it takes away the dignity of the human being. So, um, you know, so embryonic stem cell research, it can, it literally destroys human embryos to harvest their cells so that the scientific community, um, can have, uh, they can do their research on it. And actually out of embryonic stem cell research, nothing has been accomplished. Actually the stem cell research that has, you know, been helpful for diseases and all these different ailments that a human person might have in this life is from stem cell research from adults. And actually the Vatican regularly hosts a conference on how adult stem cells, which are obtained from sources such as the umbilical cord can be used to treat hundreds of different diseases. So it's not anti-science. It's just that human welfare is more important than scientific progress. And then also, just lastly, and I'll talk about this uh, in another episode as well, but it also, birth control and contraception, it's intrinsically evil because, well, one, birth control and the birth control pill, one, by the World Health Organization, has classified it as a carcinogen. It causes cancer. And it also just stops the natural flow of the body. God created us exactly how we are. And that is the only body part of our entire body that uh, we try to stop and try to suppress and manipulate is our reproductive system. And then also it just leads to all of us um, using our bodies and as, as opposed to it being a self-giving uh, and to be open to life. Now we're like, that is our end game. That is our fulfillment is just that sex so that's what we're just using each other and using our bodies and we're not opening ourselves up to life and actually truly giving ourselves to each other. All right. So, uh, and then to address a few things that a lot of people probably think the Bible or the church teaches is that the earth is flat. Um, so that is not true. And even in the fifth and sixth centuries BC, most Greek scholars accepted the view that the earth was a sphere. So this explained it's a curved, and this also explained because it, it's curved shadow on the moon and why a ship descends below the horizon as it goes out to sea. And even the ancient Roman historian and scientist Pliny the Elder, he wrote in AD 79 that this is quote, Everyone agrees that it has the most perfect figure. We always speak of the ball of the earth, and we admit it to be a globe bounded by the poles. And then there's also science historians like David Lindbergh and Ronald Numbers who even said that it was scarcely there was scarcely a Christian scholar of the Middle Ages who did not acknowledge the, the earth being a sphere and even know its approximate circumference. 
and um and a lot of people think that like the catholic church stopped columbus from going over to sail over to the new world um like uh because we thought he's gonna fall off the edge of the earth actually it wasn't the the shape of the earth but it was concerned about the length of the trip because we did not know that there was a new world out there we thought that he was gonna go around the world to come on the other side of india um, and then also talking about, I want to talk about the age of the earth. So there are Christians out there that believe that the creation story is literal. So 24 seven, uh, 24 hour literal days that God created in six days and reading from back the genealogies throughout the Bible gets us to roughly about 6,000 to 10,000 years old. And I even, before I became Catholic too, I would even listen to this radio station and this guy is preaching and he even said that, see, Genesis, it's eyewitness testimony that God created the world 6,000 to 10,000 years ago on six 24-hour literal days. And I was like, what the heck? Like, if I, I would have a tough time believing in that religion too, right? Because all of science disproves that. And even uh, before Jesus and before science discovery in general, the timing of that writing was very uh poetic so it was a way to remember and i'll get back and i'll get back to that when i get back to the topic of genesis and creation but um so the bible never states that the earth of the universe is of a certain age so the most famous attempt to to date the creation event is um from a 17th century anglican archbishop james usher who said the world was created in the year 4004 bc on the night before sunday october 23rd (laughs) So in, in contrast with that exactness, the first Vatican Council requires only that Catholics believe the world and all things which are contained in it, both spiritual and material, as regards their whole substance, have been produced by God from nothing. So you can believe that it that the world is 6,000 to 10,000 years old, or you can believe that it's billions of years old. All you're required to believe is that there is a creator that created all of this out of nothing. So, and then now let's dive into evolution. So a lot of people believe that evolution disproves a God at all, but that's just not true. So there is no conflict in believing in the existence of God and believing in the biological theory of evolution. Even Pope Benedict XVI says that there are no, there are so many scientific proofs in favor of evolution, which appears to be a reality we can see and which enriches our knowledge of life and being as such. But the doctrine of evolution does not answer every question, especially the great philosophical question, where does everything come from? And how did everything start, which ultimately led to man? I believe this is in the utmost importance. End quote. Pope Benedict, my man. And then, um, and even in uh, Pope Pius XII's encyclical, Humani Genetis, it says that a Catholic is free to believe that life, including the bodies of modern human beings, was formed via the evolutionary process. Catholics are simply not free to believe that our souls were part of the evolutionary process. Since the soul is immortal and immaterial meaning, it cannot evolve, but must be created directly by God within each human person. So evolution could not explain why we act in certain ways. It doesn't explain why we should or should not act in those ways, just like those moral arguments that we made earlier. And even evolution. So this is a cool analogy that I read. Consider this analogy. So suppose that that after a thorough scientific investigation of the famous painting Mona Lisa, we all concluded that it was the result of collisions of paint and canvas gradually leading from indecipherable shapes and patches of color to a beautiful and intriguing picture of a woman. The analysis of the painting would be correct. The analysis by no means disproves or makes unnecessary Leonardo da Vinci as the painter. More reasonable is that the collisions of paint and canvas occurred randomly until a masterpiece emerged so that they were directed by some intelligence, a.k.a. God, when we bring that analogy out back into who created the world and even evolution getting us to man. Who created all of that? God did. So... um. And then to dive into a little bit of how do we reconcile the creation story of Genesis in the Bible with evolution. 
this is what the catechism says in paragraph 22 and 20 and 289 so genesis express in their solemn language the truths of creation its origin and its end in god its order and goodness the vocation of man and the finally and finally the drama of sin and the hope of salvation and in paragraph 283 it says that the church is open to the idea of an old universe and to the idea that God used evolution as part of his plan for creating life, paragraph 283. So let's talk about some different uh, evolutions. So there's cosmological evolution, and the church has infallibly defined that the universe was, was specially created out of nothing. So Vatican, the first Vatican council says, uh, is, is solemnly defined that everyone must confess the world and all things which are contained in it, both spiritual and material, as regards their whole substance, have been produced by God from nothing. So the church does not have an official position on whether the stars, the nebulae, and planets we see today were created at that time or whether they developed over time. For example, in the aftermath of the Big Bang that modern cosmo cosmologists discuss. However, the church would, would maintain that if the stars and planets did evolve or develop over time, this still ultimately must be attributed to God and his plan. So then let's dive into some biological evolution. So the church does not have an official position on whether various life forms developed over the course of time. However, it says that if they did develop, then they did not so under the impetus, they did so under the impetus and guidance of God, and their ultimate creation must be ascribed to him. Concerning human evolution, the church has a more definite teaching. It allows for the possibility that man's body developed from previous biological forms under God's guidance, but it insists on the special creation of his soul. Pope Pius XII declared that the teaching authority of the church does not forbid that in conformity with the present state of human sciences and sacred theology, research, and discussions take place with regard to the doctrine of evolution, and as in as far as it inquires into the origin of the human body as coming from pre-existent and living matter, but the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. So whether the human body was specially created or developed, we are required to hold as a matter of Catholic faith that human soul is specially created. It did not evolve and it is not inherited from our parents as our bodies are. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about the creation narrative in Genesis. So um, a, lot of, a lot of Christians, there's... A lot of Christians that believe that it's very literal. However, let's talk about um, a different way to read it. So there's either the literal or the spiritual. And the spiritual, in this case, would be um, more of like a topical application of reading it. So even the readers at that time, it is, it's believed that they wouldn't have let it, read it as literal. It is a way almost like poetically knowing God's creation. So six days. And then it also was like to keep time with God, right? Because God created time and it was therefore how to keep time with God. You know, we'd work for six days and rest for one. Um, and it has this natural flow. So, um, and in eighty in the 8200s origin of Alexandria, he noted that day and night are made on the first day but the sun is not created until the fourth. So that's kind of implying that it's probably not literal. And maybe I'll talk about this some other time more about the just the Bible. But some, some Christians would say that the Bible literally was like the human being was basically possessed by God and like wrote it uh, exactly how God would have wrote it. But the Catholic Church teaches that God is the author of sacred scripture because he inspired the human writers. He used the human writers' context, their history, their what they were going through at that time, how they wrote, their just everything about them, he was able to work through, right? So humans still had their human limitations. So like, for example, on the limitation, if, if it was truly just like God had the pen and just wrote it himself, well, then it wouldn't make sense on times where St. Paul says he didn't know other people that he baptized in the new testament right so um and there's uh and in genesis it's i mean we're talking about a snake slithering on the ground an apple causing e causing this evil to come into the world right it doesn't seem very literal okay so it's trying to paint a picture but it still has real truths to it so let's dive in a little bit more so 
Um, as we said, uh, Origin of Alexandria pointed out that the first day, the sun, uh, that their day and night were, were made, but it, not until the fourth day that the sun, who, which, which produces light and day and night, um, was created. So it kind of is implying that there's this topical reading. So a literary device and not presenting a literal chronology. So Genesis 1 is to be given on a non-chronological topical reading. Advocates of this view point out that in ancient literature, it was common to, to sequence historical material by topic rather than in any strict chronological order. The argument is that all of this is real history, though. It is simply ordered topically rather than chronologically chronologically in the ancient audience of genesis it is argued would have understood it as such even if genesis 1 records god's work in a topical fashion it still records god's work because things god really did he actually did create the world um and the catechism explains that uh and this is in paragraph 337 um and in uh, paragraph 338 Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest of the seventh day. But nothing exists that does not owe its existence to God the Creator. The world began with God's word, do, word drew out of nothingness. All existent beings, all of nature, and all of human history is rooted in this primordial event, the very genesis by which the world was constituted and time begun. And then uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, so we talk about Pope Benedict. This is when he was a cardinal before he became Pope. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger says, The biblical account of man's creation doesn't explain how human persons came to be, but rather what they are. It explains their inmost origin and casts light on the project that they are, and vice versa. The theory of evolution seeks to understand and describe biological developments, but in so doing, it can't explain where the project of human persons come from, nor their inner origin, nor their particular nature. To that extent, we are faced here with two complementary rather than mutually exclusive realities. And, uh, and then in paragraph 390 of the Catechism, it says, The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a pri primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. So we did have, we did come from two people. However, how that happened uh, we're not exactly positive, um, but and I've, I, I was I was also asked by a friend before, you know, like why would God create that tree that was evil? Well, He didn't create anything that was evil. He has pure goodness, but He has given us all free will, right? So just to explain how evil basically um, entered into our world, and to reconcile that with uh, the creation narrative and the fall narrative of Genesis. God created us human beings, but he also created the angels to have free will. He gave them free will in order to love him or to reject them. So uh, at the time of cre creating man, so he gave us these souls that were perfect. The souls did not go through this evolution process if our biological bodies did. But we did have these two literal parents that we descended from, and they were made perfectly in fellowship with God. However, they had the choice to disobey God. And it wasn't like God was tempting them, like, don't eat that tree, don't eat the apple off of that tree, and then they go over there and eat the apple. No, like, they decided, as I mentioned earlier, they basically tried to become God without God. They made a decision to disobey God, right? So God did not create evil but rather evil came from rebellion against God, both from the angels and from us as human beings. And, um, and so in even the Catholic Church, it teaches that the first 11 chapters of Genesis contain historical truths that answer th these basic questions, affirming that God created everything and made humans in his image in order for them to know and adore him. But those chapters state the principal truths which are fundamental for our salvation and also give a popular description of the origin of the human race and the chosen people. And even St. Augustine, a bishop of uh, Hippo in Africa in the 4th and 5th centuries, he had commentary on the book of Genesis that God created the world in an instant 
but the six days in the in the book of Genesis were used to describe it because, according to Greek mathematicians, six was a perfect number representing how the world is perfect in the act of creation. The Catechism states uh, that Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work, concluded by the rest uh, uh, of the seventh day. And so we can see even uh, over 1,500 years ago, this we already had this understanding of Genesis being not necessarily literal, and it could have had this this um, more metaphorical language. And as opposed to like Darwinism, evolution came up, and we're like, oh, we got to explain this away in order to reconcile the two. No, 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 no. Way before Darwinism's uh, ideology came into play, people already knew that God could have created the world from an instant. It did not have to be six twenty-four literal days. Um, and on how the fall occurred. This, these were real truths expressed in a metaphorical or a uh, just a spiritual topical way. So a Catholic is still free to either have that literal view of Genesis or another interpretation that allows for a long period of time in which life evolves from a common ancestor. So how does all of that reconcile with the God of the Bible? Well, as we, uh, as we explained earlier talking about um, how creation came about from this unmovable, unchangeable God. So then God and the contingent uh, argument, God is necessary, so he cannot fail to exist. He is infinite. He's without limit. He's eternal. He's not bound to time. He's immaterial, not bound by space. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omniscient, all-knowing. And so that also reconciles because God is being or existence itself. And it, like Aquinas explains it as what they are is their essence and the fact that they are, their existence. And so God, in, in his case, is what he is existence. He must exist because he is existence. And he even refers to himself in the Bible as I am in Exodus 3.14. So when he says I am, it's because he just is existence. <laughs> he is existence of, uh, itself. So even... Uh, um. Like asking what explains the existence of God is basically asking the same thing as what causes triangles to have three sides or fire to be hot. The answer is explained in the definition of the thing itself. Fire's nature is to be hot. A triangle's nature is to be three-sided. And God's nature is to exist because he is existence itself. So if God is being not just a being who exists without limit, then it follows that God is not limited in his power, knowledge, love, goodness, and ability to exist beyond space and time. So my friends, God exists. He, there is a creator. And oh, next week, I'm just so excited to talk about Jesus. Like this was so philosophical and I had so many notes, but I cannot wait to talk about Jesus next week. So I just prayed that this was fruitful for everybody and can see the realities of God or uh, pointing to a creator of this world. And I'm just so excited about next week to talk about Jesus, the one who has uh, revealed God and the God of Christianity, the Trinity, three persons and one God who so intimately loves you that he came and died on a cross for you. And I just pray that next week, um, talking about Jesus truly will, uh, put a, I put like this fire in our heart to get rid of any indifference in our hearts. And for, uh, any of my friends that are not religious, but spiritual, that's awesome because you do realize that there's things that are outside of this, uh, material world that are, that are realities. And, um, you know, we, you see that there is this higher presence or a higher being or a higher power, but let's talk about what spirit are we interacting with? And that is Jesus Christ that wants to reveal himself to you. And, uh, and just to, Get, kick us off for next week too. I just love this quote. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to kick this off with next week too, but C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I cannot wait for next week to talk about Jesus with you all, and God bless you all. Love y'all.